Hey folks, we are back for episode 9. We took a break and didn't put out a new episode last week since I've been in my new job and didn't really have time to find a guest and record, so this week I'll make up for it with two guests. Talia and Lucy talk to us about Avoidant Restrictive Feeding and Intake Disorder, or ARFID. This illness is characterised by a restrictive diet with little variety because of sensory issues, food-related trauma and anxiety disorders, to name a few. Unlike anorexia though, ARFID isn't usually about controlling weight or body shape, but can cause malnutrition and weight loss. It's seen as a children's illness, as extreme picky eating, but it can continue into adulthood. Of course, I have to ask that you rate, review and share this podcast. I have a lot of exciting episodes coming up, so you don't want to miss them. Trigger warnings, as always, are in the episode description. So here we go with episode 9, all about ARFID. So here I am with Lucy and Talia to talk avoidant restrictive feeding or intake disorder. And this is something a fair bit different from what we've discussed so far. It is very much a recognised eating disorder, but I don't know. I feel like maybe the way to put it is that there's a very different motivation in what drives it. Even if some of the maybe the physical or the social effects can be similar to those of other eating disorders, it's yeah, it, it and it pre- can present fairly well in some people. But it's not really known about, it's definitely not an acronym people that, you know, the general public are familiar with. And I really wanted to shed some light on it. It's something, although I've never been diagnosed with it or anything, I, you know, I had some trait of it. And I think that's relating to me being neurodivergent and having, being very sensitive to certain sensory things, um, which I'm sure will come up in a bit. But yeah, it's one of those episodes where it's all about my guests talking about their experiences because who better to learn from than people who are living with it so thank you both for being here and I'm gonna pick on Lucy to start with telling us a little bit about yourself and your experience with Arford and your journey to diagnosis and any elements of recovery in there as well Okay, so so I'm 21 now and I'm a student. I'm studying psychology. I was diagnosed with ARFID originally when I was, I was either 13 or 14 and the diagnosis came through CAMS. So I didn't originally go to CAMS for that purpose. It was actually for other mental health problems I was having, but my eating problems sort of came out when I was when I was discussing with them and I was quite underweight at the time as well so it was sort of a concern from a physical health point but um I'd never really discussed with anyone like what what was what had caused that and what was causing me to um not eat as much and well not really enjoy eating so so yeah I, I was I was diagnosed then but after that point there wasn't any like clear like treatment approach for ARFID. I had some sessions with different therapists but there was never any sort of specific targeted treatment for it. I never really had any any treatment on the NHS for it um, and I was in hospital for quite a while um, due to being underweight so I was put into an inpatient unit to sort of gain weight but they had even less understanding of, of ARFID so I was pretty much just forced to eat what I was given um, which which meant for, for a lot of the time we just I ended up having the sort of the meal replacement instead of the food because I was only allowed to choose three different dislikes and I had more than three dislikes. <laughs> My god I relate so hard to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I was kind of, um, that was that was a really that was a really difficult experience in terms of that because none of the like doctors or anyone sort of that I was working with had they had very very little understanding of what ARFID was and what it was like to live with it. And then I was I was also diagnosed with anorexia at that point, but I never felt like it really fitted how I felt. It was sort of felt like a bit of a misdiagnosis, and there was some traits that fit into both but it was sort of one of those things where like I, I think I think that it definitely overlapped with other eating disorders so it was quite hard to um determine the difference but I was kind of not treated for ARFID in that setting uh and then that carried on for a while I was I was in quite a few different hospitals but um after that I think going to um going to university was 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 helpful in like sort of throwing myself in at the deep end a bit with cooking for myself 
and originally like in my first year especially it was really really hard um and I had to come home a couple of times for like long periods um I did anyway did have to anyway because of um corona but um I was sort of it was sort of going that way anyway because I wasn't able to eat enough um I didn't have enough that I liked eating I didn't have enough that I felt comfortable eating to like sustain myself I guess and then and then yeah I guess I feel like I've made like progress with my ARFID in terms of being able to eat more of a variety of foods but I still have like daily struggles with with different things like sensory the sensory component is a really really big part for me and I have sensory issues outside of that as well but in terms of eating a lot of it is around the smell of food textures taste and also the environment around me so if if there's like a smell where I'm eating that is off-putting to me like I I will really really struggle to eat or if like the cutlery or (laughs) glasses or whatever I'm eating with has like a smell that I don't like or that that makes it really difficult for me to be able to eat and yeah I mean even even like even even now I haven't really had any specific treatment for it like I've been like with mental health services since I was 14 but there's never been any like this is this is how we treat our food it's sort of like they don't know or there's not enough research into treatments around it. When I was inpatient as a teenager and obviously I I was there partially for anorexia there was another another patient came in with our food and the call for hers was being emetophobic so she thought if she didn't eat she couldn't it couldn't come back up basically which I again kind of, kind of was a component for me for a, a little bit because I'm emetophobic as well but yeah she was treated with the rest of the ED patients so it was a general adolescent ward and she was you know put in supervision after meals and yeah basically treated the same way even though she was very open and honest about the fact that she wasn't trying to lose weight and she wasn't trying to you know all all of the other motivations that ED patients often have like the element of control or self-harm or any of those things she was literally saying I'm scared of eating in case I get ill um and it was kind of I imagine it was really difficult for her to be stuck with a bunch of other patients who just because she was struggling with food it was a totally different reason and she felt very out of place which I, I suppose that was quite possibly similar to you, especially with the misdiagnosis. Yeah, very similar. I think being in an inpatient unit is quite isolating in itself. But when, when you're with like a lot of patients that have the same eating disorder, and obviously there's differences in how like even having the same eating disorder like comes across in different people, but they have the same sort of motivation generally and a lot of things are similar so it's quite a felt like quite an isolating experience um not being able to relate to a lot of things but also I felt that it made me pick up habit and it made me almost like second guess myself and doubt myself like I'm not really sure like I went in there thinking actually I really want to gain weight I'm actually quite happy about this and then I was sort of not really sure what I wanted I was like I don't really know what who I am anymore I don't really know like what I should feel like and and yeah that was that was a really difficult experience I guess because there wasn't anyone else um that I was that I was with for that time that um that had the same struggles as, as me yeah there's so much you can pick up in these environments and I remember seeing younger patients presenting with an eating disorder learning tricks and behaviors and stuff that were really unhealthy that they hadn't hadn't even considered before and I do think these environments like inpatient are necessary you know they've saved my life but it's not all healthy (laughs) by no stretch no definitely definitely not like I mean and and I've, I've heard that from 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 loads of people that I've that I was I was with like it was I think when when a lot of people with an eating disorder are all together and they live together like it's a very unhealthy environment and you know I mean obviously it's 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 sometimes it's not avoidable but what I feel as well is that well for for my treatment especially um there wasn't there wasn't really another option but inpatient like there wasn't for me there wasn't any um outpatient treatment uh there wasn't day patient treatment um, I know some people that have had that and that has been a lot more helpful but um but yeah it's in a lot of places um, inpatient is the is the only option 
Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a mental component to Arvid and the different reasons as to why the diet gets restricted to such a degree. But eating disorders in general in, well, in a general hospital, again, they're not well treated. Um, and I imagine that would, again, be the same for refeeding with Arvid. And you'd end up, you know, again, on the meal replacement, which, I, they ha- again, they have a place but they don't restore broader diet or whatever. And they're also, I mean, I didn't like them very much either. They weren't great. I, I really didn't like them either. And we had, we had in our, um, in the first hospital I was in, they, they had vanilla. That was the only option for flavours. I've been in other places where they give you an option for flavours, but our option was a vanilla. And that is, for me, the worst flavour. Oh, no. So it was, it was, it was horrible. It, was, it tasted so bad for me. Thinking as well, when you're talking about the environment, um, whether that be smells or maybe, I don't know if, like, noise or anything would contribute to the anxiety. Meal times in inpatient are very tense and potentially noisy. And there's all different smells and then there's the smells of other people that like overwhelming in the sensory way there, there is a lot there's a lot of that there's there can be um also for me i had a bit of a had a problem with the smell of the uh, mirror replacement as well because they stopped us we used to have be able to drink it with a straw uh, which i found much better because then i didn't really have to smell it while i was drinking and then they banned straws because some patients were using them to drink it too slow which obviously didn't apply to everyone. It definitely didn't apply to me. Um, we weren't allowed straws anymore, so that made it so much harder like, to drink it because of all of those sort of sensory issues. And I did try to explain that, but it was like, it's a blanket rule, there's nothing we can do. Yeah, blanket rules are tricky. And straws, I know some people use them for various disordered ways. And I'm not going to list them now because I don't want anyone with an active eating disorder to <laughs> um, pick up on any any tricks so yeah that's such an overwhelming amount of things to deal with all the while no one around you having the understanding so that's pretty brutal Talia do you want to tell us a bit about what you've been through uh, yeah so I'm uh, I'm 23 now so I've been through uni I've been through high school and I I, I can't remember a time where I didn't have issues with food um, it was described from like when I was a very young child that like I wouldn't eat in school. And then as I started like gaining memories, I do remember the smells in the uh, canteen and all sorts of things like that. And yeah, I just really wasn't comfortable there at all. Um, I ended up seeking treatment when I was about uh, 15 and I did that through CAMS. And I actually got diagnosed with anorexia. And I think that they also mentioned some kind of OCD around food, which was kind of close, but we didn't really explore that at all. Um, So I was being treated for anorexia. And yeah, again, I just I felt like none of it really applied to me. They'd have like my mother in the room, for example, and say like, "Okay, you've got to cook all her meals for her. You've got to watch her eat them. And like that, that just wasn't an issue or something that I felt was needed. And I also felt when I was going back there every week, it was just like a outpatient sort of situation. Um, I felt like she'd look at my food diary and then I'd just be told off. And, you know, it was, I, I would be trying my hardest. I wouldn't be purposely doing anything to lose weight. I, I was underweight at the time, but, you know, it wasn't something that I was actively trying to do to myself. Um, So I did end up discharging myself from there and I decided to kind of, I focused on it myself for a couple of years because I thought at least if I'm eating three meals a day, it's something, even if they are the same three meals every day, it doesn't matter because I'm consuming it and I did start putting on some healthy weight. I think the next big thing then was going to university. Uh, It was only about an hour or so from my house, so it wasn't like massive sort of, you know, being completely separated from my family or anything. Um, But I did explore the option of completely living alone so I wouldn't have to deal with a shared kitchen because that terrified me. Um, But in the end, I did end up in halls with seven other people and often in halls, you know, many other people join you as well. And I actually, I I found it tough at times. There were times where it was too messy. I'd go to my friends to cook, sort of things like that. But I think having Arfid for so long, 
it, there was an element of um, problem solving that comes with it and just sort of finding your way around problems as you go. And I think, yeah, ultimately uni was a good experience for me. It, it exposed me to a lot more. And then it was in my third year. So that was just before the pandemic started that I really felt like, right, I'm an adult now and I'm still, you know, struggling. I can't rely on people forever. So that's when I decided to seek treatment again. So I went through the primary mental health team at my GPs, who then referred me on to um, the, eat, the eating disorder service, I think it was called. And I started seeing um, a therapist regularly. And she was the one who actually told me at that point that I had ARFID. And um, I know like diagnosis can, can be helpful, can be unhelpful for some people. But for me, it just it felt like a weight had been lifted because finally I had a name for this thing that nobody else in my life had. And, I, you know, I couldn't relate to anyone. Nobody could understand, you know, after a lifetime of just being labelled a fussy child, you know. So, yeah, we did treatment every week and uh, it changed over to uh, Zoom like this and uh, it was still good. And she she was really um, good with uh, listening to like a range of problems because she understood that even though I'm getting treated for an eating disorder, there's so much like the anxiety and everything else just comes in. It's, it's like a big web. And she understood that. So she let me talk about, you know, a silly little thing that actually did throw me off for the day and things like that. Um, so I was one of the, I think she said I was one of the first people to be trialed on this scheme. Um, it's a, it was a new treatment for ARFID, which combined, um, like talking with exposure therapy. So we decide on a list of foods to eat that week to try. And these didn't have to be completely new. These could be foods that maybe I'd eaten in the past and I've like narrowed myself back down so I could expand out again. And I think just learning more about the condition was brilliant for me because I learned that actually there is a biological component to it. And say, for example, having a better sense of smell than like other people can be enough that it's extremely triggering when you do smell things and textures as well is another big one. So, yeah, I, I think it was really valuable having that treatment and I'm out of it now and just kind of continuing the work slowly when I can. And yeah, just trying not to not to let it rule my day because it's very difficult to sort of carry on with normal life when I'm constantly trying to think and plan ahead for my meals because I feel like if I don't eat them I could faint or something else bad could happen so yeah that's uh, pretty much my experience so far. Okay Fab I do wonder how it affected especially you know in your teens and then going to uni how it affected you socially both of you? Quite a lot I mean I think because I mean even like especially when I first started uni as well like I because I think planning food and like planning around meals is such a big thing like that's almost like what I have to prioritize so like if I go out and there's nowhere I can eat and I'm sort of I'll just be like really really low on energy and there won't be anything anywhere I can go that that has something that I'm able to eat and I guess quite a lot of the time it made me want to avoid going out and also I would get quite stressed they say I was like going out in the evening and I hadn't had my tea I would be like oh I really need to eat now but because I knew that I needed to eat quite soon be sort of it would, like my anxiety would be really high and, and I already find social situations quite hard anyway I get quite anxious about that so it's sort of like a combination of already being anxious about going out and then the added anxiety of like what am I going to eat like I need to eat something that's going to keep me going I need to eat a proper meal and then I would get quite like worked up and then not be able to eat because uh, if I'm especially anxious I find it really difficult to eat anyway but even more so than usual. Yeah I've had um, like yeah similar experiences um, I think as a as like a young teenager um, where I fully I didn't fully understand sometimes that if I if I didn't eat that I could potentially faint or pass out. Um, that did affect me because I, I actually would pass out sometimes. But I, I was really lucky. I had some really lovely friends who understood and 
they they knew how to deal with it they knew who to contact and I always felt quite safe when I was with people and then going into uni obviously it's very scary telling a new group of people that you know I may need them to be a little more understanding with me in the kitchen and things like that and uh, yeah they all, all brilliant again um, you know I've had a couple of experiences that were a little negative where again just people just didn't understand they, they wouldn't understand how something so little to them could affect me so much just like um a pile of dirty dishes could mean that I wouldn't cook my food in there that day and it, it's so frustrating because it seems so silly um but yeah socially as well um I'd have a similar thing with nights out or something like that uh, I'd have to make sure that I was well fed before I go out because obviously you're out to the early hours um, yeah, because of you, you know lie. anxiety is <laughs> yes yeah and you know I was never a big one for the you know the night out all the time but I would go occasionally it was fun uh, but yeah having anxiety as well um, I had to stop drinking completely because it was affecting me and giving me panic attacks but then if I think back like because of my sort of aversion to tastes and smells I actually didn't like alcohol anyway yeah so. I, I, I'm the same I, I mean I, I do drink um because I, I like going out and drinking but generally there's not any alcohol that I really like the taste of I find and I find shots horrible yeah so like, tequila <laughs> makes me so like I like a lot of the time I'm drinking with people and they're like, oh, it doesn't really taste of much. But to me, it tastes so strong and I can taste it like the whole night after I've had one shot. And I would still do it. I would still make myself do it. I was like, I want to like be a part of this. Like I want to, I don't want to look like I'm just like being boring or whatever. But eventually I just made the decision that like, I just don't do shots because it tends to make me just go over the edge or make me gag. And then I would be sick. Um, yeah. And then that would, yeah. that would put me off <laughs> like yeah. going out. <laughs> There's definitely an element as well of like, um, uh, I'm not sure, I can't remember the word you used for it, but is it a fear of being sick? Yeah, a metaphobia. Met- right, so I've never heard of that before, but I, yeah, definitely I would be terrified after my second drink that, oh my God, what if I'm sick? It's like the worst possible thing that could happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually I developed a weird habit um, a couple of months, well, probably about a year ago now, um, where I was so scared of being sick all the time that I would carry a plastic bag around with me and I would sleep with it next to my bed. And it was just crazy to me because I'm I'm so rarely sick, like talking years and years. And it just, it became such a horrible fear that I felt like I had to try and prevent it all the time. And uh, yeah, sort of similar thing with drinking then as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I have so much, I relate to a lot of that. Um, I didn't drink as a teenager because of my emetophobia. And I've never been a heavy drinker mainly because of that. And yeah, I, I had ridiculous things when my, why emetophobia was particularly bad. I've had it my whole life. But when I had long hair, I would panic because like if I tie my hair up I'm tempting fate and I'm gonna be ill but if I have my hair down what if I'm ill and it gets in my hair this really ridiculous conundrum that didn't make any sense at all um and yeah again it wasn't the cause of my eating disorder but it was definitely um it felt like a bonus like well I'm restricting for all of these reasons but also it might mean that it's less likely that I'm going to be ill and I wasn't for about 18 years I hadn't and then a couple of years ago I got a stomach bug and I survived it but I'm still I still have the phobia and you know I've talked about it in previous episodes because I also had the horrible feeling of I'm terrified of it but I wish I could make myself do it because I want to empty myself and all of that kind of thing yeah it's so now you've got a you've got a word to describe your um to describe that experience now it's a very real thing so don't feel alone it's actually one of the most common phobias in the world oh that's it's really good to know because it just it feels so unusual because I'm the only one in the room obviously thinking about it yeah uh, but yeah it does it ties into food so much because like if um I'm I'm a meat eater so it's pretty much part of most of my meals because I don't eat a lot else and um obviously you can undercook things and I'm terrified of that so I end up often overcooking my food to the point where it's dry and kind of gross just because I'm so scared of undercooking it that's so funny then um when I I don't eat meat I haven't eaten meat for years but that was another thing that I would do or I'd make my mum do 
And when again, when my emetophobia was particularly bad, for about eight hours after eating any meat product, I would have a stomach ache, like a psychosomatic stomach ache, convinced I'd have I had food poisoning for the whole eight hours after eating, especially chicken. Um, and part of it not helped by the fact my brother did get food poisoning once and it was horrendous. And that, that's actually what made my parents take my OCD and emetophobia seriously because they saw my reaction to that and thought, oh, she's not just being awkward or difficult. This is a problem. And yes. I think that's probably yeah. the case, again, with eating disorder in general, but Arthur as well, seen as being you know, just difficult or fussy, as if fussy is the worst thing you can be anyway. Like when I see things online, it's just like, oh, adults who don't eat this, that or the other are pathetic. I'm just like, there are so many things worse than being a fussy eater. So like, you know, there are there can be issues relating to it, a matter of malnutrition. And like we talked about, it can be really difficult socially and it affects your mental health. But in terms of who you are as a person, if you're a fussy eater, you can't write someone off because they don't like vegetables or whatever, for lack of a better example. Yeah, I think that the um, the idea of like, you know, going to restaurants and stuff can obviously be very stressful. And um, if I go and I look at a menu, I'm scouring that menu for the one thing that I can eat on there because there's usually barely anything, you know, maybe it's on the children's menu. But I've always just found it just crazy how other people can go in, look at this menu, and they just, they like everything. So they're thinking, what do I want to have today? That's a crazy (laughs) idea to me. It baffles me as well. Um, Going to restaurants and cafes, the way Lucy was describing how difficult it can be, that really parallels anorexia recovery for me. Because even if, you know, the reasons what I'd eat was so limited is different, it's still that same hurdle of going or just trawling around your local area to find one thing that you're comfortable with and it takes a lot of time and effort and you get so anxious over it that you end up not bothering um that was so relatable when you said that um and clearly the more we're talking the more I realize I have elements of Arthur in my life um, <laughs> There's, there's, too, there's so much relating going on here that I wasn't expecting this level of. So, yeah, people looking at a menu and having multiple options, like, in a way, like, if I, I, I tend to go to the same restaurants all the time when we can go to restaurants. Um, and I have, I have the same thing each time I go there because I'm used to it and it's safe and I don't have to worry about not liking it. There's always a risk of what if I order something and I don't like it and it's a waste of money and I cause a scene. Obviously, this is very personal and it's only really a side to the whole experience. But maybe just so people who aren't familiar with Arthur could get a, more of an idea. What difficulties do you have around food, whether it be your sensory related um, or potentially attached to memories or anything that makes it, rules it out maybe? So, uh, yeah, I think for for me, uh, a sensory component is a big part. Also, for me, um, I like things to be the same. So like, for example, this specifically, specifically relates to pastry. I has to be like, for me, cooked like the same like if it's overdone or underdone it's and it's the same for like foods like like pretty much any food that's cooked um it tastes completely different to me if it's like uh, a little bit overdone or underdone or it's just there's something just not right about or it's a different sauce there's like all of those like very things that seem like a very small thing make a drastic difference to the taste and texture for me so if i have something and it's like not what I was expecting or not what I'm used to and it's not like what I usually enjoy it really throws me off and I it, it, I don't know it, it panics me and for me as well I there's a little bit of a um I see eating a lot of the time as more of a chore than like something that's enjoyable um I think that's something that got a bit has got a bit better like I've been able to enjoy food more but uh, there's still like still kind of see eating as like something I have to do rather than something that I want to do. 
Yeah, I can relate to that as well. Because in when you're in refeeding, it feels like all you do is eat and it's boring. It gets boring. Like you spent so long being deprived. And, you know, I was obsessed with all the food I wasn't eating. And then you've got to eat all the time, especially inpatient when you're on a meal plan and you've got set times and it's just like, I feel like there's barely any time between meals and snacks. And even now, I think it's possibly, again, relating to my ADHD mostly, I reckon, in that I go through phases of being fed up with all food I like, but not willing to find anything new. Yeah, me, me too. I really relate to that. And it's just, it's so much and it's so much effort especially you know you've got other things going on in your life and there's still this obligation to stay alive and also you know to stay accountable in your recovery because um, even however long into recovery you are six or seven years on in my case a, a, a small slip up or two can trigger a really bad snowball effect and yeah it's there are times I really enjoy food and it's so important in all cultures. But yeah, when it's boring, it's so much more effort. Yeah, definitely. Talia, what is it about certain foods that you find difficult? Right. So it is, it's been like a growing list of habits that I've just adopted over the years. And the I have things like if say like yogurts for example they're sold in packs of six usually I eat child ones because they don't have lumps in them and like I've accepted that it's fine I like them so you know um and often in the stores then they'll be sort of two for one so then suddenly I've got 12 of them and they're in the fridge and I'm like okay they got three weeks on them on the date so that's plenty of time but then every time I open the fridge it's just oh my god there's 12 of them I can't even eat one because it's just so overwhelming and this happens to a lot of things that maybe I don't eat all that regularly Uh, but then I could you know I have a box a snack box full of chocolate and biscuits and it doesn't matter how many of them there are I'm perfectly happy to you know delve in there whenever I feel like it I think I also relate to the uh, eating being a chore sort of thing I feel like I have to plan my day so meticulously around the food just to you know ensure that I don't feel faint or rough during the day and yeah it does get boring but also I eat really plain really dry food because I don't like I don't like wetness or really much flavor to be honest I find it really overwhelming um smells have always been a big one um I could be upstairs in my room here and my flatmate could start um doing her lunch and I, I can smell it already and I'm, I'm like okay I'll just uh, I'll stay up here for a bit but again I think that's good for me because it's exposing me to a bit more and getting me used to it um I actually learned during my um therapy that when we restrict our food down to this really sort of thin category, when we try something new or smell something new, it's so overwhelming for us because it's so different to everything that we are used to. And it just, everything just made sense then. And I sort of stopped feeling like I'm so unusual for not liking foods because there is a reason for it in in terms of that. I think as well, they they always say with the ARFID, um, when you sort of, google even what it is it's categorized by not really being surrounded by body image but it's it is something that i struggle with because you know because of what arfid sort of does to your mind you do under eat and you do stay skinny and then putting on this healthy weight can seem you know it's it is very overwhelming because even though i know in my head it's healthy I am seeing my body growing and it's not always a comfortable thing and definitely something I'm still getting used to. I, I really relate to that. Like when I was, uh, when I started gaining weight and I think when I was impatient as well, it was quite a fast process. Maybe like if it was sort of more, I'd been eating at home, it's sort of more like staged and a bit slower. But when it was impatient, it happened quick. Um, and although I wanted to gain weight originally, suddenly when I'd gained loads of weight, it really... um. Yeah, it felt really overwhelming and it was sort of like really um like shocking. Like I was like I'm not used to this body. Like this is this is very new to me. This is very like and, and I didn't like it. I really didn't like it. I was like 
like I thought this is what I wanted and I, I guess I'm a healthy weight but I just I just wasn't I just didn't know what to do with myself because I was like this is such a shock like and this is just not what I'm used to like I gained quite a lot of weight in my face um originally um and apparently as well like if you have especially because I was on so much 40 zip um it was quite a and it was quite a fast weight gain I think uh, my weight distributed differently and then it redistributed that is very common in refeeding for regardless of why you're underweight it is yeah and it's a really difficult part of the process and if you know if for whatever reason people if people lose weight through illness mental or physical and then they have to go through the weight gain process in a society that berates weight gain in pretty much any setting even if you you know your weight loss and your eating disorder weren't body image related it can get intertwined with that because it's according to our fat phobic society it's the worst thing you can do and also people love to comment on it i remember um when i was inpatient as, as an adult and we had bank staff which are always a bad idea uh, as far as i'm concerned when uh, it comes to eating disorder treatment and one of the patients who had been there a long time this bank staff said oh you've gained a lot of weight since i was last here how is that appropriate and it's not just in that kind of setting regard any change in weight people will say something so even if it wasn't an anxiety for you before it can very much become one so easily also i found that when i was underweight um there was a lot of comments from people not understanding why i wanted to gain weight they're like why like you should be happy as you are like sort of like being thin is good i was like i was unhealthy and I didn't want, like, I wasn't happy with my body, but it was like, I should be sort of like, I should be, you know, celebrating that I'm thin because that's, that's you know, that, that that's what society sees as a good thing, whether you're, um, you're healthy being, like, physically healthy being thin or not. It was like, the message that I got was sort of like, well, and no one understood when I said, when I went to the doctor and I said that I'm not happy with my body, I was like, I'm, I'm really thin and I know that I'm physically unhealthy um, but also I, I'm just not comfortable with myself and I was like I wanted I want to gain weight like I think that'll make me feel better in myself physically mentally I just want to be a healthy weight and that was always like why like wh- why do you want to gain weight um, and even like doctors were kind of like oh you're just this is just how you naturally are like you're just naturally skinny and I don't think that was ever true but that was always what I was told I was told that I was naturally thin and that and then I gained weight and I got to a healthy weight and realized that my body was so much healthier and like my mind was healthier and I felt more energetic and got all of that because I wasn't never ever meant to, I was never like naturally underweight. So few people are and there's an advert on Facebook at the moment for some clothing brand and one of the models is painfully thin and I was you know starting to hope that we'd kind of move past that by 2021 and all like there's loads of comments saying this person's so skinny and unhealthy and it's, you know, she probably has an eating disorder and it's bad representation for young girls and women to see. And then there are people saying, oh, well, she's probably naturally like that. And there's, and I think as a very common thing, me certainly in my recovery, it was just like, I'm naturally, I like, I naturally have a low BMI, like that's what's healthy for me. And I was convinced of it. And I was totally wrong. <laughs> I, you know, and I've, you know, talked about this on the podcast before is that we don't get to decide where our health is and nor do our, nor do medical professionals as part of our care. I had a colleague who didn't have an eating disorder, but was very thin. And a doctor said to her once, you're underweight, but don't try and gain weight because then you'll have to eat fatty foods and that's unhealthy. Yeah, I, I know. I just wanted to, when she told me that, I wanted to, bang my head against the wall but um the sad the sad fact is it sounds like all of us having been with mental health teams and everything there are some really good eggs in there who know what they're talking about but some you have to take what they say with a pinch of salt because they don't know as much as they think they do especially about topics that are vastly misunderstood eating disorders in general but especially something like arthrid which People have an idea of eating disorders and what causes them and how people with eating disorders behave. 
and what the thoughts behind it. And they're generally stereotypes that are wrong, but especially Arthur being very different, a different mental process to other eating disorders that I've, you know, talked about on the podcast before and tried to keep this diverse. No wonder they got it wrong. (laughs) There's so little understanding of eating disorders in general, let alone this even lesser known subcategory of them. Yeah, definitely. I remember uh, I went to see a doctor. Um, I was I was getting like signed off of work due to partly due to the eating disorder, the anxiety, the build up of everything. And he asked me, "What would you like me to put down as the reason?" And I said, well, "You can put Arfid, my eating disorder." And he goes, "Oh, I've never heard of that before. Like my GP in my surgery had never heard of my eating disorder. I just thought it was crazy." And I know that like it's a it's been sort of a fairly recent sort of classification or it's been updated or something, but I feel like that should have been you know big news to doctors and especially in places where you know I was a uni student, there's a lot of young people and that kind of risk area, so I thought it would be more of a a topic that they would understand about no my the statistic I always bring up is that GPs get an average of two hours of training on eating disorders in their whole career. And that definitely, almost definitely wouldn't touch on OSFED or ARFID. It would be like, this is anorexia, this is bulimia, that's it. Here's, that's your two hours done. You never have to talk about it again. Yeah. And when you go through, um, when you go through to the primary mental health team the first thing they did was have me fill out these questionnaires and you know they're all graded and everything and I was going through the questions and I just thought these are just the wrong questions for me and they were all at they were they were asking about anorexia bulimia uh, binge eating and I actually sort of put down the questionnaires I went to speak to the lady and I said look I, I know I don't fit into this category, but I need help and I can tell you everything. I can go back to my childhood and I need someone to listen to me. And it was finally at that point that I got through to this therapist who really put in the work and really helped me. So, yeah, I think uh, definitely need something done within that kind of first steps area because I feel like if I had been a bit shyer and didn't push a little bit that maybe I wouldn't have got through to having the treatment that I needed as well. Yeah, I remember those questionnaires. I was filled them out so many times. And I remember a couple of occasions where I just filled it out wrong on purpose so that they would think this is like, I think every single time I went to a new service or a new unit or just saw a new therapist, they gave me the same questionnaire. Um, and quite often I would fill it out and put the highest scores or the lowest scores just so they'd be like oh okay she needs help like (laughs) we'll help you because there was no like and there was a lot of like especially um in uh, I think there was one hospital that I was in and they had this sort of um my like doctors have had this like private meeting about me but it accident I had an advocate at the time and they uh, she found out about and told me that they'd said that um there was no point in me trying to go to another inpatient unit because I was already past the like BMI th- threshold, so they just wouldn't they wouldn't they wouldn't even consider me as a patient. And that was a message that was pushed pushed throughout throughout my care. For and I, I know that it's the same for 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 like hundreds of um, eating disorder patients because it's still a really big theme. And um, even you you'd like to think that um, the care professionals don't see that see eating disorders as a mental illness but but they, they don't a lot of the time like it's just it's still this there is still this massive problem with that and obviously arfid with arfid especially not everyone with arfid is underweight like some people are overweight some people are healthy weight it can be loads of different weights and the same with all eating disorders but especially arfid because of the motivation behind it and you know the, the differences in 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 behaviors and stuff i just remember i read something about um because ARFID is generally associated with autism spectrum disorders. Um, and an example was, coming back to what we said earlier about food being the same and wanting like consistency in it. And, you know, I, I'm a bit sensitive to this as well. Fruit varies a lot, for example. Fruit is so and predictable. I'm so, yeah, like I 
try my best to like grapes are one that I have to inspect and see whether I you can't I can't poke them and test the I want to see if they're squishy or hard or anything and you you know you've kind of just got to hope for the best when it comes to fruit and that is why it is easier to get someone with arthrid or you know sensory issues to have something like a biscuit which is always the same than a piece of fruit which varies in texture and flavor all the time yeah I, I totally understand that like I'm in the shop and like looking around to make sure nobody's looking at me because I'm picking up multiple packets and just trying to squeeze it through the packaging to see what it's like and then it's so disappointing when you get home and you think you've got a good packet or something and it's, <laughs> it's not. You, you bite into the first one you're like oh no and then oh, it's so much money as well I waste so much food and it's something I'm really working on you know like being an adult now I can't just you know, I'm not at home. It's not like my dad's there to eat it or, you know, I'm just really trying to bring that budget down and, you know, make sure I'm actually eating what I get. But yeah, like, you know, even just an apple, I've noticed lately that it seems like the, it's like the, it's like the shop workers are like throwing them into that they're so bruised at the moment i don't know why it's just come from nowhere oh, i've always hated bruising on apples yeah i still cut it out <laughs> yeah i do too so i take up a plate and a knife and i'm there cutting it away and cutting it away and actually half the apple's gone before i've even started eating it and i just thought god i probably burnt more calories like trimming this apple down <laughs> than eating it so yeah it definitely just seems like yeah at this point I'd rather just have a chicken nugget or a biscuit something safe yeah I don't eat any fruit I um I'm funny about smoothies as well because I try and get my fruit in by having smoothies instead of solid fruit but I I can only have like there's about maybe two different smoothies in in my local shop that they usually have it in that I can have but they're so expensive yeah I mean I I'm really fussy another thing I'm we're going to end up relating in terms of texture I hate juice with bits and smoothies with bits and I can I've just I've got over the yogurt thing but when it comes to what I'm drinking and or like if you get a fresh lemonade and it's got bits in it and oh just the just the sensation of it passing my lips and then being on my tongue it yeah it weirds me out and I, I feel I feel really silly for it and especially when people just like oh you won't drink pure orange juice without you know with bits in it's like I'm 28 and no I will not but yeah smoothies are smoothies are hard I mean I was scared of them for like other ed reasons but also if you get like an innocent smoothie and it's yeah any any texture it's like no don't want it go away yeah <laughs> yeah if I didn't like shake it up properly as well and then because sometimes if I was like sort of in a rush to drink it I would forget to shake it and then I would get like that when it sort of separates and you get that horrible bit and that would put me off I'd be like I can't have like, I would have to put it away like I couldn't have any more that would just put me off entirely even if I shook it up again and then it was fine like and it's got to be cold it's got to be like fridge cold <laughs> See, I still haven't gotten over the smoothie thing yet. I was advised to try them and I still haven't braved it. It's on the the distant future to-do list. But yeah, so like orange juice with bits in it. I'm not sure if you guys get this, but because you don't eat that much fruit or veg, I honestly, sometimes if I go to a shop and I see something, I genuinely don't know what this fruit or veg is called. I didn't, I didn't know it existed before or anything like that. So orange juice with bits, another one that had just kind of gone over my head until my teenage years. And I, I remember I was staying over a friend's house and I was like, oh, a lovely glass of orange juice. And I went to take a drink out of it, felt these bits and I, I didn't know what to do. It was horrifying. And I didn't know until that point that it was a real thing. So yeah, I mean, I'm still still learning all the time. I mean, I love fruit generally, even though I can be quite fussy about how it's presenting and I, I I ordered pancakes with fruit the other day um from where I used to work and there was oh, it was pomegranate which I'd, I like I've had the flavor before but I've not eaten actual pomegranate so I was like oh what's this gonna be like it's all seed and just like the I don't know if you guys relate to this as well the audio of eating something the way you hear yourself is part of that discomfort for me yeah, yeah. pomegranate's definitely a weird one with that I mean I used to I went through a stage of really liking pomegranate because for me 
uh, especially if you just get it like you know with the little packs and just to see it, it was quite easy and also I found the crunchiness of it like quite nice because it was sometimes I find the mushiness of fruit really difficult so it's sort of weighing up I don't really like that but then then I got another then I got pomegranate again and it tasted I don't know if I'd bought it and left it too long and it had gone a bit of a funny flavour, but I had a bite of it and it just tasted so bad and I never touched it since. The way we write foods off because of a single experience, whether that be emotional or just through the unpleasantness of the flavour. Yeah, I think um, that that was one of the things as well that they said is one of the sort of primary characteristics of our food is having a scary experience with something and just never touching it again. But I think there's also a side of it. So the way that I eat certain things, so say scrambled egg, for example, my mother used to eat it and she'd always mix in that brown HP sauce with it. So that is the only way that I eat it. And I never touch brown sauce in any other context at all but then that also means that if I was to go out somewhere for breakfast I can't have scrambled egg because I'm not cooking it and I don't get that chance to put that in so I think yeah there's a lot a lot around sort of learned behaviors as well and trying to break those is so difficult especially being this age now you know do I just accept that that's what's what it's going to be like or try and try and break the habit, you know? Yeah, being being an adult and still harbouring food feelings and behaviours that you had when you were five can be a bit embarrassing. Yes. <laughs> I, I, until recently, I worked in a cafe and I've spent years on and off working in cafes. And there's something about the smell and I don't eat, just the existence of ketchup really upsets me. And so if I say I collected a plate a used plate from a customer and it had ketchup smears on it the smell and the way I couldn't it wouldn't rinse off the plate but it was the smell mainly no yeah ketchup does I I totally understand that like ketchup has that smell when it's just like like I do eat ketchup on things but when it's just like left on a plate because I used to work in a cafe as well uh, and I ended up being moved apartments because I ended up having like a bit of a breakdown like on the cafe floor about because I found the like so I was on uh, like table duty most of the time and dishwash. Oh, I hate that's the the worst bit because you come up yeah. food that's gotten wet that shouldn't be wet. Yeah. Like I, I a few weeks ago um, when I was still in this job, I was really I have OCD, so it's you know the way things were to be washed up. There was no pot wash either; it was all done by hand. And I went. There were two sinks: one where we put the like the dirty things to rinse them, and then the other one where we put them to like you know properly clean them. And someone had put a bowl of chips in the sink, run the tap, and then stacked more things on top. No. Ah, I I just had to walk away. And luckily, I had a colleague who totally gets me. But in, if I was working any any of my old cafe jobs, I'd be like. You can't refuse to wash up because you found chips in the sink. <laughs> yeah, I, I I totally get that as well. I, I worked in a pub for a while and literally in my interview, I said, I will never wash a plate. Don't ever ask me to because it's just not something I'm capable of doing. And luckily they were understanding. So that was that was great. But yeah, like tomato sauce again, I... I can eat it with chips, like potato things. It's got to be in a pile on the plate. If it touches the chips before I'm ready, then I can't eat that chip. It's really, it's so, it's so weird when you actually say it out loud, isn't it? Well, but... Other wet things, <laughs> touching dry things. I remember, when, again, when I was in primary school and the, the typical 90s primary school food of you have your protein, which might be like sausages. And then you get spaghetti hoop and then you get something else. I was like, the spaghetti hoops cannot touch the sausages. Even though I like spaghetti hoops and I like sausages, they must not touch. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. And um, my mother said from a very young age, it would always be my food on a tray with like three or four different plates or bowls to keep it all in. And we, we did break out of that habit eventually, which is good. But yeah, I would never have anything wet on the plate still. I probably just wouldn't eat the wet thing at all because... You know it's just pointless at that point so I don't really bother with it <laughs> yeah I, I used to be the same with like pretty much until I feel like it was quite recently I used to have things separate like I would have um spaghetti bolognese but I'd have the spaghetti in a bowl and the bolognese on a plate oh I used to do that with beans on toast like I would have a bowl of beans and then toast on the side yeah yeah I used to do that with loads of sandwich things so I never used to eat sandwiches and then uh, I don't oh, know and wet things in sandwiches don't put tomatoes in sandwiches they will make the bread wet no 
my god oh this is just yeah. us comparing silly neuroses now but it's a very real thing that's the whole point of this episode to say it we're laughing about it and it may seem silly but it really can impact your life and your health yeah. it's what we're getting and, and at it, <laughs> and it almost it feels like it feels embarrassing to be like and it's like sometimes it feels like I'm making a big deal out of nothing but it is such it, it makes such a difference and like sometimes I used to have um, this thing about when I was washing dishes like sometimes at home um the forks and like cutlery afterwards would smell funny and it used to make me get really really upset because I would be like I would sit down and have my meal ready and I'd start eating my pasta or whatever and it would taste funny because of the fork and I would just be like oh like I would get really upset that I'm like this I would be like, why, why, why can I not just, you know, just sit down and it not bother me and just be able to eat like, like everyone else does. Like, it feels like a really like, it, it feels like a minor thing when, when you don't, when you, you're around people that just don't have these problems and you don't sort of talk to people that do. And it's, but it is, it's, it is such a big deal. And like, I went through a stage of, uh, it's got better recently, but having a, like really my gag reflex was really bad to the point that even like my foods that were normally safe like I would try and eat them and I would just have to stop because I would gag and at this point I was never actually sick and I almost knew that I wasn't going to be sick but it was just that sort of like feeling of it it was like I just I just can't like it's horrible like, I can't even eat anymore and it used to make me really really upset it's so much that I think we've all shared more common ground than possibly we expected to today Thank you again for everything you've shared so far. And if you've just got any tips you or advice you want to share to anyone with Arfid or a family of a child with Arfid that you maybe wish your parents had known or your siblings or anyone and to people dealing with it themselves. There, there is so much that goes into it that I feel like if my parents had had more of an understanding when I was young that habits could have been broken and things could have been better for me. Um, but I think I think ultimately it's about not not beating yourself up over it because, you know, I go through stages where I feel guilty that, you know, oh, my friends and I can't go to the specific restaurant because there's nothing there for me. But it, I just compare it to like, if you and your friends go in bowling or something like that, or some people don't like bowling and that's okay, then the group probably won't go and they can go with other people. So, you know, it, it shouldn't be that I stop anyone from doing what they want. And, you know, I'm, I'm never going to let anyone make me feel bad about it again. I think it's, it is important to, yeah, just sort of accept it. I'm doing my best and, yeah, I mean, definitely seeking the help that you need if you do feel like you need it. And, you know, even though we've all had the, the positive and negative experiences from it, it's it's always worth a try. I think that's um, that's probably what, what sort of gets me through it, is thinking that at least I'm doing something about it, I'm trying. And, yeah, I think to, to people who maybe have young children, again, a diagnosis may be helpful, maybe not, but it's always something to look out for because, you know, just someone who appears as just a fussy child could develop into something much bigger <laughs> later. And, yeah, just um, knowing how to support them properly. And, you know, it it's about helping some behaviours, but then also not letting them develop into bad habits. Um, I've learned about safety behaviours in terms of, you know, there's like safe foods, safe people, sort of rituals that we do. And like we personally find them helpful in the moment, but long term, they're not always and then they become a sort of compulsion with it. Um, so, yeah, I think just staying positive and, um, you know, doing doing what you can, basically. <laughs> That's brilliant. Lucy, do you have anything to add? I would just say, like, it can never hurt to ask um, someone that you know is struggling uh, with ARFID, like, what they feel comfortable with. Because every every person, like, with ARFID, they're all different. And, like, for example, what I found really helpful uh, is my friends always, like, asking how they can help me and uh, sort of listening to me and um, sort of trying out new things. Like, I have found uh, coming to university and stuff great for, like, trying out new foods, but without the pressure. So I think sometimes, like, sometimes there's sort of a tendency, like, if you have a child of ARFID, to be, like, 
to want to sort of pressure them into eating this, like eat this. Um, but it sort of has to be on their own accord because, you know, if you're sort of, uh, if they feel like they're being made to do it, uh, it's just going to cause more anxiety. So it has to be like, so it's one of those things where you have to work with with the person. They've got to want to do it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that applies to, it applies to everything, whether it's, you know, going out to that new restaurant, eating that new food. It, it makes such a difference when you know you're being supported, but not pressured into it, definitely. This has been brilliant. I feel enlightened. I feel understood and uh, a little bit cooled out. <laughs> um, quite possibly, maybe I did actually have Arfid as a child and have luckily um, since overcome aspects of it. So that that was that's news to me. Cool. <laughs> Thank you both so much. This has been so brilliant, and I'll keep in touch with both of you because this was such a fun conversation as well.